Strengthen your immune system with Goldman Laboratories Liposomal Vitamin C and get 10% off. Quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders and clinicians that are leading the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies that are changing the world. Before I introduce this week's guests, I'd like to ask everyone, as I always do, to follow follow us on the socials. It's at UK Health Radio and at Health Tech Hour. This week's guest sees us return to the world of AI in healthcare, this time with a focus on helping to diagnose cancer. Uh, and we're helping to diagnose cancer, um, helping to either diagnose it early or allow more people to avoid painful and unnecessary biopsies. Dr. Manish Patel, or Manny, is the CEO and co-founder of Jiva.ai, who are at the forefront of using their AI technology to help across radiology, pathology, and early diagnosis. Manny is an expert in bioinformatics, advanced computing, and is a serial entrepreneur. Not afraid of a challenge, Manny decided to dedicate Jiva to healthcare problems first because, in his words, they're the hardest to solve. Founded, uh, Jiva's funded by both Innovate UK and SBRI, which are the two premium or premier funding bodies in the UK. They're partnered with a range of major hospitals, and they're really pushing the boundaries in a space that's moving rapidly. So this is an area that I love learning more about. So um, Manny, welcome to the show. How are you? Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Good. Um, so I ask this of everybody. Um, what's the mood in the camp like? You know, I know that the kind of the, the lights at the end of the tunnel, but what was lockdown like for Jiva, for the team? Like how... You so- know, how- yeah, it was it was uh, it was difficult to begin with. Actually, you know, if you cast your mind back to February, March last year, we were kind of thinking: Is lockdown going to happen? Are we going to be okay? Um, and we just sort of sort of sort of floated into it. And um, lesson number one of being a CEO of a startup don't start your funding around at the beginning of a lockdown is the worst possible thing you, 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 you could do. Well, did, um, you, did, did you deliver? You didn't, but that was accidental, right? You weren't like lockdown wicked. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. No. So it all, it all kind of coincided really sort of uh, maliciously against our company. So we, we'd just finished our accelerator program with KQ labs that was being run out of the Crick Institute. That's, and, um, so that, that just, so, so that's the, um, we 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 had a look at that for pop talk, yeah. but it was actually in the end it was it was just way too AI focused. But that was one of the premium um, AI accelerators in the that's, UK, right? That's right. Yeah, being run by um, a couple of fantastic individuals who are very well connected in the AI and medical spaces. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know the the 
at the end of the accelerator, you do you do a, a, an event where you pitch and hopefully find investors for your round. So we thought, hey, great opportunity to start our funding round, a seed funding round um, at that event, which was sort of mid-March-ish. Um, and that in, person? Slapped, in, in person? In or person. No? That was in, in person. person. Yeah, that was in person. Wow. And then we went into lockdown about nine days later. Right. So, so it was, it was the worst oh possible timing. Oh, um, and, you know, at the time we were, at the time we were, we, we were, we were very um, positive. There was a good vibe around AI. There was a, a good vibe about what we were doing specifically in prostate cancer, which I'll come on a little bit later. Yeah. We've got, we've got um, lots to talk about. Yeah. And uh, I was feeling good at that time. And then as time dragged on to May, June, July, you know, we came to the realization that this is, you know, the, the VCs, I think rightly, were reinvesting in their in their port- current, you know, yeah, current supporting risk existing companies. Yeah. And you, you understand that. I mean, if I was in that position and I was I had a VC, I'd want them to to invest, reinvest in me yeah. to keep us afloat for the next year. Sure. Um, and so, so I, I understood that. And, and we, so we kind of froze it. Uh, a little bit and then came back to it in in september and um i'm happy to say uh things have been going on very Great. well since then so good uh, cool yeah, it's, been, it's been good good and um presumably now that the you know end is hopefully in sight you guys are thinking about getting back into an office together and you know being in the same place as each other and stuff like that i can happily announce we've just signed a lease for a new office oh uh, congratulations in, thank you in 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 cardiff uh oh, cool. places right. um but it looks like a really cool place i haven't even seen it myself i'm going to see it on friday okay um, excellent but, but it's uh you know all the cool tech ai healthcare type companies are there so right. it'd be very interesting to be back why, why wales is that connected to the sbri uh, no, so one of one of our lead investors in this round is um, a, a Welsh fund, yeah. and and so one of the stipulations was that we have to re- invest in Wales, which is fine by us because there seems yeah. to be a really good tech scene going on there, especially yeah. in Cardiff. especially in health, especially in health tech. There's yeah, there's a huge amount of investment and innovation happening in the Welsh it's, it's, health it's, tech scene. It's really vibrant, and again, I'll come back to the prostate thing in a, in a minute. But there's 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 one of the three very ultra high resolution MRI scanners is located at, in Cardiff, one of the research institutes oh. in Cardiff. And oh, wow. I, I just, I would not have known that unless I was, you know, talking to the right people in Cardiff. So um, yeah, interesting place yeah. To, to start up. But yeah. <laughs> so um, the show, everyone that listens will know, but just, just, just to remind everyone, we do it in three parts, which is kind of an origins part, how you came to be doing what you're doing, then all of the amazing world changing stuff that you're doing at Jiva and then what the future might hold and other things that we might kind of come on to. So um, let's go, let's go back for you in your journey. We normally don't go back this far, but I, I read your bio and your three degrees have the most incredible titles that I've ever, ever seen. So I just kind of want to understand what your kind of thoughts were that took you from molecular genetics followed by bioinformatics, followed by modeling of complex systems. So what, did, did you have a path in mind or was that just sort of like, I like a bit of that, I like a bit of that? Or like, what was the, what was the drive there? So, so I started my, my undergrad, um, uh, you know, was genetics, molecular genetics. And at the time, if, if you remember, that was when the Human, G- human Genome Project wasn't quite finished. It kind of came to an end after the, after the turn of the millennium. Um, so genetics was all the rage. 
Um, and I thought, yeah, this is this is something I can really get my teeth stuck into. Um, I very actually, I, very quickly, I found out that I'm not a lab person. So okay. there, there was a lot of wet lab stuff. Um, obviously, there would be, uh, and I thought I'd be okay with it. And by year two, I was thinking, oh, this is this really isn't for me. What can I do? That is, that is that has all the science of genetics and and all the wonderful things that are connected to it um and and binds me to something that doesn't require me to wear a white lab coat okay. was it like the environment of the lab that was restrictive for it you was or? yeah i think it was a personality thing i think i'm too impatient to be sitting in front of a you know ag- uh, agarose gel waiting for it to run uh, you know things things like this it just are just not built for it and um <laughs> you know I, I, I say i say this to my kids science experiments always go wrong and with me they 100 percent always went wrong <laughs> like, I, I never got anything to work properly <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was um it was it was one of those scenarios and i i, I didn't want to i didn't want to um you know carry on doing something that I knew I wasn't well suited to. So I I went on to doing bioinformatics. Bioinformatics was a new field coming out. You know, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, before that we spoke about the show, mm. I hadn't ever really heard of it. Um, oh, really? Yeah. yeah so, not, not particularly. So what, what is it? So bi- bioinformatics is the nexus between computer science and genetics. And what, what so what was happening was there was um, – the Human Genome Project and various other projects around the world were spitting out tons and tons of data about gene sequences, right? And um, you know, initially the the uh, the computational or algorithmic problem was how do we spot a gene in the genome? How do we do a gene sequence matching? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and and so that's 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 where it kind of was. Bioinformatics was born, and it was kind of transmuted towards how, how do we how do you predict whether a gene codes for something and, and, or how do we predict what happens when a mutation happens at a particular point in this particular gene? How does it change the structure of the protein and therefore the function within the organism? And so it, it became this entire thing around um, what was to be the precursor to what we call systems biology, which is okay. a more complexity mathematical approach to simulating uh, and understanding biological systems in silico. So, but was bioinformatics only possible because of the data set that had come out of the Human Genome Project? One hundred percent. The Human right. Genome Project was the accelerator for bioinformatics. It existed before that. It existed in the in the nineties, right? Okay. Um, and uh, but it just wasn't called bioinformatics. And anything to do with you know, you might have. IT departments in a university working on a gene sequence database, and that would be under the broad term of bioinformatics. But that was basically just IT, right? That was software development in biology. Um, It wasn't really taking the science into account. And that's where bioinformatics really came into its own. Okay. And so when you you finished your modeling of complex systems work and and you've got all of those degrees and things like that, what was your sort of direction or your your plan? Um, I didn't have one. Yeah, so so it's a funny story. I uh, so, but I I, I love doing genetics. Bioinformatics is great. I did my masters in bioinformatics and did a research, uh, a a year or two of research at UCL um, in that particular field. Um, And uh, as every um, as every Indian subcontinental listener will attest to, 
their their moms will try to get them married when they're early in their early twenties. And my mom was like, "So, so when are you when are you getting married?" I was like, "I, I can't get married because I'm doing a PhD." And it just came out, and then I, then I had to do it. <laughs> no, no, it, it was it, it kind of transpired that way, and okay. and the opportunity came along for a PhD in systems biology. The person that was involved was Dr. Sylvia Nagel at at UCL. She was an absolute visionary in okay. in computational biology and she she was the first one to say guys we need to stop looking at bioinformatics and start looking at systems biology as a whole systems as a whole and the way she said it was this is again this is at the time when you know two, early 2000s when the, the iPods were coming up okay. and um she she made a really good analogy she was she, she basically said you know what what you guys are doing in bioinformatics and gene expression arrays and this kind of thing this is kind of like blending an ipod in a blender looking at all the bits and and then asking the question what songs were on this ipad uh, on this ipod (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't give you any insight it it gives you the constituency it doesn't really give you that the meat it doesn't give you the insight and that's what we really wanted to get into and that's that's how we got into the systems biology track of things and my 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 uh my phd okay and when um and at what point because obviously a lot of that was within health tech right it's all sort of health orientated when did you continue on with that path did you always feel like your pathway was in health or did you sort of like move around a bit i i want so i wanted to stay in health i wanted to stay doing in in that area where there was you know even though i wasn't a doctor you know on the front line there was an impact to patients in the long run there's impact to the nhs and healthcare in general i really like that idea um reality hit me pretty quickly you know i i couldn't afford a house in london on a on an academic salary i couldn't do the things i wanted to do um and i just made the decision that actually i need i i need i need to do something else in the interim um and then come back to this and my intention was always to come back to healthcare it was just a question of when um and so i went from my phd from that realization you know i i went into banking um so algorithmic trading teams um and you know i was at lehman brothers and i was at lehman brothers when it collapsed which was okay. interesting interesting times yeah um, you <laughs> yeah. one of the guys walking out with the cardboard boxes kind of I, you know what one of the films i can't remember there were three films or so around uh, lehman brothers uh, one of them was was like this semi-fictional semi uh documentary type of film and yeah. I, i'm actually in one of those films you can see me in my salmon oh, wow. shirt on the fourth floor just just sort of laughing with my colleagues thinking what oh, is wow. going on um oh yeah no it was it was it was really interesting times because you know uh well as you as you know it was it was the it precipitated everything else that came after it that lasted yeah. years and years and years yeah um uh, and but, but you know in my defense i wasn't a banker so <laughs> I, I, I wasn't you know there's no no judgment here no judgment. <laughs> was it more like you were waiting for the vehicle to come along to bring you back to health yeah, I think so. And and you know, at, at the time there wasn't there wasn't as much a startup. Scene. There was a startup scene, of course, but there, it wasn't as um, hard hitting, and it wasn't as uh, vibrant as it is as it has been in the last few years in London. Oh, and particularly um, in health tech. I mean, there seems to yeah. have been a huge, huge explosion. 
Within, well, if you if you talk about healthcare, if you talk about healthcare startups in in two thousand eight, well, we talk, you'd be talking about pharmaceuticals, you'd be talking about bio, uh, life sciences, you'd be talking about ten year cycles of of a company starting up, you know, getting fifty million quid in uh, everything up to Series D to, to come up with a drug discovery or a, a, yeah, a drug. It was in really, the end. pharma and drug discovery, digital that, healthcare wasn't was. really a thing yet. Exactly, it wasn't. Really, it wasn't really there. Only, only very few people picked up on that to begin with. And those those guys, I suppose, are the ones that did really develop in the end. Um, but yeah, so so it's sort of mid. So actually, actually, I had I had actually started a startup with a friend of mine in 2011. That was in hospitality. That's still going actually. Um, shout out to Epicurie, download. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, you know that. So that that's the. You know, we also suffered because of COVID for that for that particular startup. But um, it wasn't really until kind of mid to so, so 2015 2016 when i thought okay now 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 is the time i've you know i've done the things i needed to do um actually interestingly all the things that i picked up in my phd from the mathematical algorithmic perspective were all applicable equally in fintech okay. and and it, and i just saw this parallel in every project every sort of angle that i used to work in mm. um there was always this issue of how do you, how do you get better um, simulations of the complex system that you're trying to replicate, right? And okay. and and it always I suppose not always, but in my mind, it was always a matter of break down the problem into small parts, and the amalgamation of all of those parts will give us a better sort of uh, uh, simulation of the whole uh, and why more attractive and why are you trying to replicate this the complex system is you trying to replicate it in order to understand it is that the I, th- I think there are two reasons there are two reasons one one is that complex systems by the very definition of the word are emergent and difficult to understand and have far more great far greater layers of meaning than than uh, than meets the eye um, the second is you want to be able to reason with them you want to be okay. able to predict them and okay. explain them mm-hmm. uh, and so and so for all of those for all of those reasons you want to be able to, to create uh, create a replica in silicon right. because if you can't create a replica you don't have any kind of like substrate to test things on yeah yeah i mean i mean you know the classic classic example that you know we're not there yet right but if you could if you could have a almost perfect digital replica of of the human system as a complex system right you would not need to be able you would not need to have extensive clinical trials for covid uh, for the covid vaccine right you could run it through the you could run it through the digital system run it through the simulation right, right? and so long as it has a very high efficacy rate for immune uh, immune response then you know at least i guess at least part of the way i'm not saying that i'm not, I'm not saying but, it mitigates. You to, but with all diseases that's where you want yeah. to get to that's, that's exactly exactly and that, that that's that's the dream right the, the dream is that we're able to predict these things with a high level of accuracy um and uh be be able to take away the risks for uh, take away the risk so so clinical trials are clear there's a clear risk to human health there it's yeah. it's, a, it's an accepted risk because you have to go through a human clinical trial to get a drug through yeah. um but there's still a risk there's still a risk and you know yeah. if 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 we had a drug going through a clinical trial and we could predict that hey this drug increases the uh, po- possible incidence of of heart disease or you know stroke or something then 
that's something worth picking up on in simulations. And also the clinical trials are also kind of like linear in the sense that you have to like recruit volunteers, test volunteers, wait, read to, you know, you, whereas yeah, and you, you, can only, you can only parallel process so much and also they're extremely expensive. Whereas exactly. if you have a digital system, effectively you can be parallel processing, processing a kind of almost infinite number of, of trials or procedures or whatever you want to do through the system yeah. at a much, much, much lower an you know a tiny cost per per you know per, per exactly what well, what so so the 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 simile is what accountants used to be able to do in six months on paper spreadsheets they can now do in an hour on excel right, right. and they can run those those tests really really quickly it's the same. We want to get to the same goal. I mean, and that's just one avenue. I'm just, I'm just talking about this little quarter. Yeah. yeah. And so when you did, when you did your PhD with this, mm. with this visionary lady, um, I can't remember what was her name. Sil- Sil- Sylvia Nagel. Sil- Sylvia Nagel. Was, was that her dream? Was that the dream that this, that, that, that it was In almost part. like a sort of a, uh, like a forward facing this is where we're getting to this is the vision sort of thing in 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 part i think that was her dream and i mean she had she had lots of other things going and but in terms of in terms of um biochemistry and genetics you know she was from a biochemistry background and um i think she was i think she was very the one of the very few people right at the beginning not to get super excited about technologies like um gene expression arrays so gene expression arrays where these you know these one inch by one inch or even smaller so sort of like one centimeter by one centimeter little squares chips yeah. and they would have thousands of tiny little dots on them right. and you would run a serum over it and right. after you run the serum it would tell you what genes are being expressed in that in oh. that um in that cell right okay and, and that would give you an expression so, so you could you could compare normal cells versus cancerous cells and you can see okay right so this particular gene has been knocked out therefore that's got to do something with you know um apoptosis or something you know, a bit like something. trying to find a needle in a haystack sort of thing like yeah yeah no, running and, and, these serum arrays and seeing which one gets knocked out with that one and then like that's, exactly that strikes me as a kind of a a long-winded way to do it. it it is and it does it does give you a ton of data it gives you a ton yeah. of data but it doesn't necessarily give you the whole systems view of things and that's what that's where she was going she was she was saying well that's one little cogwheel and we're talking about this enormously complex system we don't have the computational capacity to be able to simulate it we don't even have the algorithmic capacity to simulate it how do we get to that point and and, right. and that's and that's and that's where we you know that's where we started off the question for the PhD. Um, so we, you know, my my specifically what the question that I was trying to answer was we have, you know, we have loads and loads of different models that describe growth. We have models that describe angiogenesis, so how vascularization happens inside a, a tumor. Um, we have lots of models about how a tumor responds to therapy. Uh, you know, so all these different sort of contexts. Um, so we had different models of these things. How do we get all of these things to cooperate? How do we get all of these things to be simulated? Yes, because other, because otherwise you've got not competing is the wrong word, but you've got totally discrete models about how one thing operates, but they might not necessarily like work together or gel together or you know exactly. you can't run them together because it's they're completely different uh, and and the interesting thing the in, one of the interesting outcomes which is not actually that surprising when you think about complex systems is that when you actually merge them together you get this behavior these behaviors that are not that are not present in either of the models 
And actually, when you compare that to the real system, they were a lot more real system-like than they were than you know the the stylized individual models. And so that's where the journey started. That this this idea that you yeah. know you need to be able to fuse these things together. You need to fuse models. Together. So was that this this idea of fusing different models into something that's greater than the sum of its parts? Was that always sort of like a guiding principle for you? Absolutely. And I I I I. I, I Right from that point, I saw everything through that lens. So um, when we were when, when I when we were in the banking world, you know, I didn't go straight into algorithmic trading. I was all on the IT side, and all moved into all quant trading teams. Um, and the more I worked on the algorithmic side of things, the more I could see. Well, we you know we're breaking this enormously complex system, which includes market dynamics, which is a function of human psychology and you know um, geopolitical situations and news and all sorts of all sorts of other things. We're breaking these things down into these tiny molecules of models. And we are creating um, sometimes, you know, very lucrative, uh, but but also sort of very um, impactful algo trading algos based on these tiny slivers of information from the complex system, from this big, huge complex system. Surely, surely the better idea is to put all these things together, and, and because you know that this thing over here, right? Um, you know the micro the, the, the micro dynamics of um, FX in uh, in cable. You know USD GB, yeah. GBP USD is is intrinsically sort of related to news from the Bank of England and oh. the Fed, and and there's got to be this interplay as well as the other things that are happening that plays. So how do you put those things together? Yeah. Um, of course, when it when it comes to high frequency trading, you don't have that luxury of being able to to you know by by definition you're you're trying to execute things on a microsecond type of scale yeah. so you just have to have the time to do it in, in silico simulation before making a trading decision so that's you know that's understood yeah. but this is everywhere whether you look in healthcare finance um predicting um uh when automobile parts will fail you know yeah. right. every everything involves this hugely complex set of inputs and when we look at ai in general um we look at one vertical we look at one thing and say okay let's try to predict this one thing that's, we, that's we what they call narrow ai is that right narrow ai so yeah that's how i would define narrow factor. ai yeah was yeah. unimodal single mode ai uh, that's that's how i would define it so you look at one vertical and it might be the most important vertical. I'm not saying that's not important. You know, you look at this one vertical to the exclusion of everything else and try to predict it. Yeah. And Great. and we 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 really should be looking at things in a wider scope. Uh, yeah. And just, just to drive home the point, case in point, right? Um, GPT-3, amazing piece of tech that came out. Um, I don't know if you know about GPT-3. That's basically <laughs> like a... It, it's... it's um, is a piece of AI that can it can literally write poetry, oh, um, okay. and you start it off, and it can start you know writing natural language. It, it's super super cool tech. Right. Um, it took something like I can't remember what the number is, something like seventeen billion length vector to, to you know to as an input. Uh, the training was ridiculously long. Right. Uh, uh, God knows how many kilowatts of energy it took to train right. that model. A huge uh, project, basically. A huge, huge project. Are you, as you can't remember when you were three years old, but when you were three years old, you did not read the whole dictionary right. to learn how to speak. 
Right? You you just learned it from your mum and dad. You learned it from nursery. You yeah. were putting things together. Your brain is amazing at putting these things yeah, together. It was making its own connections, building its own neural pathways, doing what it was doing. Yeah, and 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 I, I imagine my son. My son's nine years old. He you know he he has maths classes and English classes separately. Uh, imagine his brain is pretty good at putting those things together. His, his math teacher is talking in English, explaining yeah. a problem in English, which is a mathematical problem, but a different part yeah. of his brain, different neural network in his brain is putting those those concepts together. Your brain yeah. is great at meshing these things together. But that's what we need to replicate uh, to get better, to get to this point where we all talk about general AI and talking about, you know, uh, AIs that can be as good, if not better than human beings. Um how, how we, we can't we can't even conceive of getting to that point when we don't have a fundamental understanding or a fundamental set of theories for fusion um, otherwise you're looking at trying to learn the whole world in one go but you're, you're basically trying looking at take having like millions if not billions of unimodal systems right yeah that, that are really 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 good at poetry or really 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 good at i don't know hangman or really really good or, at whatever or, yeah yeah or, or maybe <laughs> or maybe they're not good at any of them maybe maybe they're just okay right all of them but but when they're when those just okay models get put together i mean we've seen this in in a, in a technology called ensemble tech so in ensemble tech you you take lots of AIs, a similar idea to what we're saying. You take yeah. lots of AIs or lots of models, and uh, you take the outputs from each model, yeah. and you put some kind of decision tree on top of it. So okay. you believe one model over another in certain circumstances, or you take an average or a weighted average, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's been proven again and again in, in various research papers that you can get, you can have lots of models that are okay yeah. at the at the categorization or classification problem but together they perform really well right, right? and and right. that's what we're trying to achieve we don't need necessarily need amazing models for each of these little verticals we just need good enough models right and that and that's the basis i mean that's just that's still step one step two is trying to trying to think of a way of you know so, on that, let, so what in after what, what what was the one moment your epiphany that brought you back to health tech with Jiva. How, what, what's that? And then let's go on to all of the amazing stuff that you guys are doing or have done, because, you know, based off of that, that vision that you had when you're doing your PhD, you're actually really making it happen in reality with Jiva focused on some really, really critical healthcare problems. So what was that turning point or that, that moment of epiphany that brought you back to health tech? So I would say there were two moments. So the, one moment was, when I was um, within the banking sort of arena and I had an argument with a colleague, not it wasn't even a colleague, it was a sales guy. And okay. it's just someone I didn't really interact with much. And um, it was, you know, it raised voices as you have on the trading floor. That's just the way it is on the trading floor. There's a lot of testosterone. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and he walked away and I thought at that point, I, I'd never do that ordinarily. I don't, I mean, you know, I have right, arguments. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have an argument about what you were arguing about. It was yeah, I, I, I felt I'd, I'd lost my heart and soul in this right. business. And, and okay. I thought, okay, this is, this is the moment where I thought, that's, uh, I, I need to get out of this. I at least need to get out of this um, atmosphere. Okay. Um, so uh, I went to a different company. It was still within algorithmic trading. And um, even then it was slowly kind of, ebbing away the, the interest was ebbing away and i was reading 
in you know back then i was on facebook i'm not on facebook anymore but uh you know reading articles on facebook about you know the, such and such are doing this in ai facebook ai was becoming a thing yeah um people you know, were like was it when people really started to look at like using ai to analyze in medical imagery and things like that deep mind deep mind okay. deep mind it was at the time and actually one of the guys that i worked with in that company that i was at um he went over to deep mind just before it became a really big thing and um good move. yeah good move yeah exactly uh, to, to the point where on his linkedin profile he had to put in his linkedin profile description if you have any questions about deep mind please don't connect with me because i'm not going to answer any questions <laughs> wow <laughs> Um, wow. okay. so, so, you know, it's, um, at that point I thought, you know what, I missed a trick here. I was, I was in, I was in that area right. and I could have continued and I didn't. Uh, and so I, you know, a very good friend of mine from university, Chetan, Chetan K here, who yep. is, um, uh, you know, we were at uni together, uh, undergrad. So he's been a friend of like 25 years now. And, uh, he was saying at the time, you know, healthcare, healthcare data, data in general actually it wasn't just healthcare but data in general this is the thing this is the next big thing that we need to look at Mm. what do you think we should do and that question just kept on coming up again and again and again over the years so this was from 2014 ish to 2016 and then by then i'd already transitioned to another startup Um, so i'd already said i'd give up on this on this uh banking stuff and i'm going to go into healthcare again and i worked for a company called cupris who i still have a uh, a working relationship with you know just with the guys that started it and um uh as a cto and the you know so this, this question has kept on coming up again and again and eventually um Chet, Chet made the move to to join the clinical entrepreneurship program under Prof. NHS program. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah, so that was run that, at the time that was being run by Prof. Tony Young, and it was started by started off by another chap named Paul Gowden. Um, and uh, Chet was like, "You should see some of the companies here. They're just, you know, we've got to join this program and we've got to do right. something here." Right. Um, and actually, just just, just just to just to touch on that, because yeah. I think you've kind of underplayed this program slightly so it's the it's basically the, the nhs clinical entrepreneur program is sort of the premier program for anyone working within the nhs who wants to develop an idea that they've had into a business it's it's unbelievably well regarded not just within the nhs but also within you know the health tech industry so for you yep. and for chetan to be on that is pretty pretty special yeah yeah and 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 that's that's you do down down to chat actually he's he he was he was amazing at at getting the ear of prof young and um you know uh trying to wrangle things out of him it was yeah, really it was really quite something yeah. to behold um so it was it was funny it was, was chetan's a good networker he is he is and it was funny that we did we had a call with prof young a few weeks ago and he he, he said to chat uh, that you know you're one of these people that just don't leave me alone and that's why i know you'll be successful <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know he's he's amazing at that, at that at that kind of stuff so um yeah we went through that program and prof young being a urologist uh, introduced us to Professor Prokhar Dasgupta, um, and who is a, who is you know at the time was the chief uh, editor in chief of the BJUI, um, which is you know the urological journal of choice uh, uh, globally, and right. um, so kind of a big deal in the field. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he really is a big deal in the field, and yeah. um, he he basically told us right from the outset, look guys, there is a specific problem in prostate cancer diagnostics 
um, we have an issue where the radiological diagnosis, so you know, you're a radiologist or radiologists that look at look at these scans, okay. are incredibly subject, subjective. So you could have, oh really? Yeah. So you could have like a, you could have five radiologists, and one of them might say cancer, another might say mm, it's okay, and the others might say, oh, well, we're not sure. And uh, yeah, is it that much of a spread? It's that it's that is, varied. Yeah, it's a big, big variance, and wow. uh, and and this is the problem that you know. <laughs> Put things into context, right? So there were more prostate cancer diagnoses um, in the run-up to uh, lockdown last year than there were breast cancer diagnoses. Wow! So there were more people diagnosed with prostate cancer in the UK yep. prior prior to COVID Co- than people being diagnosed with breast cancer. Co- correct. So every wow. year, around fifty thousand diagnosed. Probably, I, I mean, confidently, I could say more that were not. Uh, diagnosed or you know sort of yeah. fell off fell off the list somehow um, and now imagine you have uh, you know your your clinical steps are you first of all you get a PSA test which is a blood test prostate specific antigen test correct yeah, yeah. and that measures the, the level in your blood now that by itself is a really poor indicator of prostate cancer yeah there's a, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of controversy around that yeah. particular test in, in yeah. the diagnostic value of it exactly and especially at the early stage level right and yeah. and the fact that you know um a man of my age uh, i'm almost 42 um Sorry, I'm almost 22. A man of my age. <laughs> yeah, there was a problem on the line there. Yeah, it was kind yeah, of like a yeah, God, internet, a, you know. Um, um, who is who is of Afro-Caribbean descent will likely have higher PSA levels than I do. Just right. it's just the genetics. Yeah, it. it's just what happens. Yeah. So so it's not a very good indicator. I've heard that longitudinally, if you do it, if you track it over time, that's a better indicator. Yes, but, it would but, be as an absolute as an absolute one-off then it's a bit yeah yeah which is which is why actually you know the nhs is moving towards just you know erring on the side of caution and just putting men into the mri uh scanning pathway which is great because good good stuff you know you get get more resolution yeah you get more certainty around uh the diagnosis but even then there's this there's a subjectivity and because of the subjectivity you get um a lot more men having biopsies when they don't actually need one great for the guys that do need it because yeah. we need to understand what grade their cancer is yeah. but for the guys that don't they're getting erectile dysfunction they're getting rectal bleeding they're getting bleeding in the urine they're getting uh, sepsis you know uh, it's, a bit, it's but, but, but yeah the biopsy the prostate biopsy from, from what i read and understand is a very serious invasive um, procedure invasive i mean you know it's basically a needle up the bum several needles up the bum and it's you know remember we're talking about guys that are probably in their 50s 60s 70s they're already somewhat immunocompromised just due to age right uh so sepsis is a big deal you don't you know one percent almost one percent of guys will get some kind of infection due to the biopsy whether or not they have cancer and the cost to the NHS to actually, or cost to all healthcare systems in, in, in the world, to just cope with those guys coming back to hospital, spending several nights, um, you know, getting getting looked after by doctors and nurses, all that time being spent by doctors and nurses when they should be spending on the guys that actually do need their attention on on the cancer side. Um, 
is is phenomenal. So, you know, we, we did really, you know, we did as much analysis as we could with the data that we had. We found that something like, you know, over a hundred million pounds a year um, in just treating biopsy uh, false positives. Um, uh, almost four billion dollars in the US. Wow. So, uh, so it's so, an incredible amount of money. So is it that so 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 the due to the range of possible interpretations of um, a scan, is it yeah. a, 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 an MRI scan? Is that right? MRI. Yeah. An MRI scan with prostate cancer. Clinicians are sort of trained to err on the side of caution um, and refer people to biopsy if there's any question and unless it's a completely clear no you go for a biopsy and there's a quite a large number of people that don't need a biopsy because it's always a false positive in effect exactly exactly so, and how how have you worked with jiva to address that issue yeah so 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 jiva so at the time i'll go back to when we were at the yeah. clinical entrepreneurship program at the time introduced to this problem we, we were we were a startup doing it the doing it the wrong way around you know we had we had a solution we didn't have a problem <laughs> Trying to find a problem yeah yeah, yeah yeah and usually most most entrepreneurs will tell you you know what go back to your day job because that's not how you start a business um but actually it depends how good your tech is <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but actually you know the general problem we were trying to fix was this multimodal ai problem you know the next generation of ai we were, we were trying to find application areas for it and um it seemed to us a difficult enough arena to go into healthcare right so in no other sector i mean very few ourselves won't say no other very few other sectors you get as complex data um, as dynamic data and even when you do get it the stuff is patchy <laughs> it's not even all there yet and um uh, how do you cope how do you cope with those complexities in a system that is in itself the complex by definition so um it was it was a nice way to to approach it and so we we came up with this this uh problem well we were presented with this problem how do you diagnose prostate cancer is better yeah. um and we were able to develop a proof of concept that was actually pretty quick we, you know we almost got to 90 percent um using our jiva model rather than you know uh, rather than using deep learning uh, and there was a reason i'll come back to that there's a reason why we didn't use convolutional neural nets which is you know all the rage nowadays um we use our own proprietary jiva model to to create a machine learning model for uh for prostate cancer diagnostics just lo- looking at the mri image or actually it's a set of mri images you know because you have lots and lots of images through the through the access um uh and we were already in our proof of concept better better sensitivity than a human being um so so you know can i can i just ask a basic question so Mm. the data inputs to your model are they the mri scans or do you take in other information as well or is it just for now yeah for now for now it's actually just the scans Right, ah. but this is why this is why I said I'll come back to the the Jiva model. So you, you raise it at the right time. When it comes to the point where we need to create, we need to include other modalities yeah. for the patients. So the PSA level, or perhaps yeah. there are genetic uh, components that we yeah, can yeah family history, family histories you know, exactly yeah, right conditions exactly. So all of these things we can ethnicity a big one. So we we can start merging these all these things in, into the single model to make an even better prediction of whether yeah. this is a prostate cancer so so that, that's, that's why we've gone down this way of doing things rather than the traditional convoluted neural net way of doing things because that way of doing things doesn't really give us that ability to to merge things together 
So the neural net piece, that's really more, is that more like where you just sort of let it run itself and it sort of figures it out on its own sort of thing? So, so the methodology is the same. So, sorry, the, the concept is the same. So think of the neural network as just a black box and yep. it takes a bunch of inputs. It somehow munges some calculations yeah. together yeah. and it comes up with an output, a prediction, right? Yeah, exactly. And it does that multiple times in the training process and tries to uh, optimize itself so that it's generalized or... Uh, mostly correct given your training data set exactly the same jiva does exactly the same thing we just don't use this concept of perceptrons inside our model so this perceptron is where you have like a network of nodes and weights between the nodes and it's the weights that you're um trying to optimize right. in, in okay. a neural network model and yet there's, there's you know, literally millions of ways you can cut a neural network and you have you have, you have a you know a veritable zoo of okay. different types of neural networks, uh, but they're all basically variations of this basic component. Okay. Um, but let's go back to the prostate cancer. Yeah, so so you know we uh, we built this model, and uh, you know we got to the point where actually you know what, not only is there a whole business in in doing a, a prostate cancer diagnostic, there's actually a whole business in doing this whole fusion as a platform. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to use the idea was that we would use the prostate cancer diagnostics um, as a use case for mm-hmm. the platform, the general technology. And sure. in the same way, in parallel, we did we did a liver disease diagnostic, and that's something that's funded by Innovate UK. And, yeah, that's the big that's the big grant that you received. From yeah, the so we got and Innovate UK. Is that that's, right? That's right. So from Innovate UK. So so we got a grant from Innovate UK to do uh, to look at. Um, Primary, lo- primary care level data, so, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds and smoker, non-smoker, okay. diets, that kind of thing, um, and to predict whether these patients have liver disease or will at some point get liver disease. Oh, wow. And so you're actually taking in multimodal data and trying to build a predictive model. Exactly. We just started on this journey. So it's not, you know, because of COVID, it was delayed, but we, you know, we, we just started in September ish. And, um, uh, yeah, we take, taking this data in. And, and again, imagine the impact, the human impact this has. Forget about the financial impact of the NHS because we know there is a multi billion pound saving to be made. Um, oh, yeah, that'd be enormous. Early diagnosis. Can, yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, liver disease is one of the biggest issues at the NHS. Exactly. And it has, and it has, and it has these secondary effects, right? So not yeah. only HCC, but you have all sorts of other things that are co-related diabetes and and, yeah. and all the things that go along with diabetes exactly and obesity and obesity yeah, exactly yeah so so there's, there there are so many there is there are so many human benefits to this project it's, it's unreal and actually what's also un- unreal is the fact that um we, we, we won this grant and with manchester university and a great team at manchester and a great and a great consortium um within this consortium we have rush diagnostics and ge healthcare yeah as well. i saw that so are they are they backing you in the tr- in the in the in the grant that's right yeah yeah so wow. so they are the big corporate partners in this in this project and and you know, this provides a company like ours with a level of access to the market leaders, right? Yeah. They are they are literally a couple of you know the biggest companies in the world, really, right? Yeah, it's extremely positively about what you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 the fact that we can have you know fortnightly calls with with their tech team and to talk about how we integrate our system with theirs is um, is massive for a startup like ours, and that's the kind of thing that. CEOs dream of 
Yeah, that's yeah. the kind of punishment that CEOs dream of. And with, um, with, the, with, this, with the liver cancer piece, with the predictive mm-hmm. element of it, are you trying to, is the aim to aid in the diagnosis or in the prevention or both? So it could possibly be, but so, so the initial aim is that we prevent. Okay. So, or prevent and early diagnosis are almost the same thing. They're kind of on the, the boundary, right? So yeah, what we're trying to do is, is get to those patients early on in the pathway so they don't end up having to deal with all the repercussions of being too late in that pathway. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And so within healthcare, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced with what you're trying to do? Because I know that not everyone, well, 10 years ago, not everyone was all that sold on the use of AI in healthcare. I think obviously it's moved pretty dramatically <laughs> the other way now. Yeah. But what are the biggest obstacles or challenges that you've had um, you know, to face in trying to sort of roll out what you're doing. Sure. So, so, so I think one of the major challenges you, you meant, you sort of touched on it just now. One of the major challenges used to be the fact that clinicians weren't brought in yeah. and um, that has changed dramatically over the last year uh, more than it had changed two years before that. Even right. it was a thing. Everyone knew it was a thing, but now when, you know, when, when healthcare chiefs are looking at their backlogs they're going to be yeah. thinking how the hell how do well, we automate it's, it's, this? you have yeah. to you can't yeah. you 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 know and i i look I, we're a, we're on the um, nhs digital accelerator poctoc my, my company is as well yeah. as many other people and it's a yeah. the, the, unbelievably the number of incredible companies are on it and they're on it every year but it, it's one of the things along with the clinical entrepreneurship scheme along with the um nhs um accelerator national accelerator i feel like the nhs is really putting a lot of work into promoting and pushing digital solutions certainly more than it was you know eight to ten years ago by quite some distance absolutely um and here's the unfortunate part so there there is there is a there is still a wall for companies like ours to 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 get over with the nhs nhs would be an amazing institution to sell to Right, because it's yeah. a, it's a massive badge of honour to be able to sell to the NHS. That's something off the back of which you can go to international markets and say, "We're selling to well, the NHS." Yeah, it's like if you've got if you've gone through the NHS due diligence program and they they bought your product or services, then you know pretty much that's a pretty big step that that's applicable anywhere in the world. Everyone's like, "Oh wow, okay, fine." The NHS due diligence process is pretty thorough, so exactly. I'm okay with you. Exactly, exactly. So it's um, it's uh, you know. But the problem is, there are a lot of decision. This is my experience. There are a lot of decision makers in secondary care yeah. um, that you have that have to get involved to get your product in front of patients or in front of clinicians. Mm-hmm. In our case, we're not we're not patient facing. Um, so it's still a very long haul to get there. And I, I think the NHS is making the right moves, or I should say the government is making the right moves in, in the formation of NHS X and yeah, I think NHS that's critical. digital before it. Yeah. And although I still don't understand what the difference is between digital. I think there's a lot of people that don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not completely certain yeah. myself, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, so they, they are, they are going in the right direction, but it's still, it's still, you know, when you can demonstrate to me that as a startup, I, I say, I've got a product that does X, right? Now put me in front of the right people. And then within the next two months, I'm at a point where we can get to the right decision makers and we are talking about commercials. That just let's talk about happen. that. With, let's go back to that with the prostate cancer piece because mm. you've got proof of concept. You've demonstrated it's, it's, it's better, well, more sensitive um, yep. 
than than Humans, human yeah. reader, Qu- yeah. qualified human reader, or a qualified human reader, yeah. qualified qualified human reader. Um, so I would imagine it'd be better than me, <laughs> million times out of a million. But um, what what is that pathway like then for you with that with that particular condition? Because obviously you know all signs are good. You've got green light so far. What yeah? What, so what's the... we, so so from the clinical side, you know we've got we have a lot of buy-in from clinicians, right? Clini- right. Radiologists love it. You know, you know they, right. they, they say this is exactly what we need for prostate cancer. Fantastic. Wow. Okay, cool. That's huge. Yeah, that's that, that's a, that's a big plus radiologists aren't the buyers but they're yep. not the payers yeah the right. payers are the are the procurement offices the boards of hospitals ccgs and trusts and so on and, and so that's the next step is try to get in front of them and put pressure on them to to have a look have a look at this thing as a real way of um, not only saving money for the, for that trust but also having a better patient outcome in the long run um there's also of course the barriers i I, said, I call them barriers but they are good barriers um yeah. around the regulatory piece so yeah, to have course. a diagnostic oh, would you, yeah have you got to go through the ce marking process yes yeah, so we'd have to go through the ce marking process um perhaps not initially but yeah we'd eventually need to go through the ce marking process um, and the fda process very similar uh, to prove that the thing does what it's what we say it does um now as a startup i personally don't think it's a good idea for startups to do ce marking process after ce marking process that's just not the right way to you have to do one each time you picked a disease yeah you would you would oh yeah. wow okay yeah. Yeah, because it's a new model wow that's yeah. pretty onerous. Exactly, exactly. So, so as a so as a platform, the platform the platform product for us is is uh, way better because we are we're basically providing the tools for clinicians, other SMEs, other companies to do that diagnostic for us. Yeah. So we're giving them the the you know we're effectively like a Microsoft Office. We, we'll give you Word, we'll give you Excel, we'll give you access, yeah. Microsoft access. Now you go off and create your application using our Office tools. Yeah. Um, we don't need to be CE marked and create the diagnostic. Sure. That's you, uh, yeah. but but we'll give you the tools to get there. So that's that's where we want to get to as a business. But right. to prove that we can do that, we are doing this for prostate cancer and liver disease. Right. And liver um, disease yeah. Well, I mean, if you can do that thing for liver disease, that predictive model for liver disease, that that in itself not necess- may not necessarily qualify as a medical device because what you're doing is just surfacing more information that then other people can use to then you know bring people in, call people in you know, make a diagnosis, whatever they ultimately want to do. Um, but you could do that with lots of other diseases. Is that generally the, is that the, the plan forward? That, that, that is the plan. And, and literally every single week we have a, at least one very positive call with someone who wants to do precisely that in something that's completely different from what we've spoken about before. Um, you know, so everything from respiratory to cardiac, uh, bone fracture, uh, you, know, you name, you name it. We've got, we've got so many verticals that we could explore. We couldn't pos- as a startup, we possibly couldn't possibly explore all of these in full. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that you could, by, by, I think sort of by definition, you could get blinded by the number of opportunities with what you can do. So how, how are you kind of, how are you, managing to focus what what sort of strategy do you have so so that so this so this so this is where the platform comes in right so we want to get to a point and we will be there soon um we want to get to a point where we have a low code no code user interface that is the front to our platform which i can give to you steve steve you want to you want to do some ai work right okay use my use my platform use my user interface it's really easy to use all you do is here's here's how you describe what your data is here's how you say what you want out of it 
and um, uh, now just press the go button and it will then go off and create hundreds, if not thousands of solutions to your, to your data set, right? And you will then be able to see what those solutions are, how they perform, what edge cases they do or don't, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, go, 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 go with or not go okay. with. Um, and then you can actually select one model and say, okay, productionize this model into an ISO 27001, 13485 uh, environment. And so we've managed wow. that entire modeling process for you. When you want to roll back, you can roll back a version. When you roll forward, you can roll forward a version. You, you're in complete control of your AI workflow. That's what um, we want to enable. And how, so when you upload the data set, do you need to somehow express what the problem is that you're trying to solve? Yeah, so we have a, we have a, so yeah, it's not quite there yet. We're putting the interface I together for this. G- I think it's but, amazing. Yeah. yeah, so it's, yeah, but this is, this is exactly what we need, what AI, what AI in healthcare needs, right? That's what clinicians are the experts. They don't know data science. Data science are experts, but they don't know, don't know clinical work as such, right? Yeah, and so we, super, we're trying to put yeah, these two things yeah. together. But it's super interesting because, you know, on the one hand, obviously you can't have something that's making a diagnosis that is not CE marked. That's obvious to me. You, yeah. can't, that's, you can't do that. Yeah. But, but another thing that's really obvious is that AI can really help improve these situations, but it might not necessarily be reasonable to expect that AI startups or companies will can will issue or be interested in ce marking model after model after model and all of the uh, the, the the you know given the onerous nature of ce marking for a medical device which is certainly not easy is you know certainly not simple yeah um uh, but but and and also clinicians aren't going to do it either so how do you bring all of those things together and i think that that solution where you pro- you provide that as a service to them in an easy interface or consultancy or however you ultimately do it. I think that makes a huge amount of sense if you can pull that off. Yeah, and and remember that CE marking process is is when you when you want to go commercial across the UK or into Europe. Um, if you are a doctor and you come up with a system that that somehow improves healthcare, you don't you don't need CE marking process for that. That's just something you've done doing internally as a piece of research. You can actually use that in clinical practice so with the appropriate permissions within a hospital. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah. You oh can wow. Do that. And it's it's in the in the same way that um, doctors are coming up with. So so uh, my my cousin actually he he came up with one of the drugs that um, that were treated that was treating COVID, and. Yeah. Um, they just tried it in the hospital. They obviously got the appropriate permissions through ethics and all that kind of thing. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't have to go through any other sort of clinical trial as such. It was just within the hospital. And that's what we're trying to do. Give them the ability to do it locally, at least. Yeah. At the very least, do it locally in your hospital, in your clinic. Basically, Jiva is trying to bring AI into the hospital and allow clinicians to, to use your models themselves to help treat people better precisely that's exactly what we're trying to do great well look manny on that note i think we're going to finish up but thank you so much for coming on the show i look i find this area fascinating i think what you guys are doing is brilliant and i wish you all the best so thanks for coming on and thanks to everyone for listening thanks for having me You should have seen by the look in 